There's one thing I want you to do for me. What? Come here. What? Win. Win. What are we waiting for? Take this! Hello, everybody. Welcome to Tim Gaither Podcast, episode 106. My guest today is Teague Moore. Teague is the head coach at American University in Washington, D.C. He's a three-time All-American. He wrestled at Oklahoma State under John Smith. He's an NCAA champion, and I'm really looking forward to talking to him. So let's bring him in. So what's going on, man? How's it going in Washington, D.C.? Uh, it's good. We, um, we're actually getting ready to go on vacation, and so... We're kind of doing the um, last-minute planning, trying to get everyone packed and ready, and all that good stuff. You say you're going. Things to, are good. Things say, are good. You say you're going to Florida, right? Yeah, Florida. What part of Florida? We we start in Tampa, and then we're headed over to Orlando. Okay, my brother will so, be in that area around the same time you are. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm excited. It sounds like Florida's got a lot more. Uh, freedom going on than what we have here where where i'm at it's like we're still on we're still on a significant lockdown oh yeah yeah i'm in los angeles and it's much the same thing so i can only imagine yeah um yeah well uh what do you are you when do you get to when do you get to get started then again for uh wrestling and all that do you have no idea man it, it is up in the air unfortunately um the NCAA has instituted some rules, and so we're basically in a holding pattern with the NCAA. Normally, this time of the year, I'm running my, my freestyle, my summer club, and we train five days a week in the summer. But um, they won't let us do that either uh, because D.C. and the county that I live in uh, is under total lockdown, so no gyms or anything are open yet. So even though some of our opponents are in clubs and getting workouts right now we we still are unable to do it some of my guys went home and and my team is from all over the country and so there's a good bit of them that are training with their their high school teams high school teammates other college guys because they're allowed to wherever they're at um but where where we are we're we're not allowed yeah, some some consistency would be nice when it comes to all this stuff, you know? Like, I was just in Kansas, and uh, I was talking to some of my buddies came to some of my shows that coach, like, kids wrestling, and they're back to they're back to normal and coaching kids and all this stuff, and I was on a plane, and, and all the inconsistent stuff that goes on, like, you can bring coffee on board, but they won't give you coffee because somehow that can give you coronavirus, and there was trash in the seat back table that I was, you know... I sat down and there was trash in the back of it. I'm like, well, if you guys aren't taking this seriously, I mean, you obviously didn't even clean the plane, you know? So yeah. who are we supposed to yeah. believe? You know, it just, it's just a pretty frustrating deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, uh, how old were you when you got into wrestling? And did you have, were you good from the start? And did you have any kind of an, an inspiration? Like, was it because of your brother? Yeah, it was it was mostly my older brothers. I'm the youngest of seven kids. Oh, wow. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, where I'm from, pretty much everybody wrestled uh, right out of the womb. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't 
good when I was in youth. I was competitive, right? Um, my older brothers saw success earlier than I did. And the brother just above me, my brother Ty, was a four-time Pennsylvania State champion, only lost once in high school. So he was he was kind of at the peak of where people in Pennsylvania aspire to be when they were in high school. And I jokingly tell a lot of people that I spent time when I was growing up and we would go to tournaments. I would spend a lot of my days under the bleachers looking for change because I would lose my first two matches. My brother would be preparing for his finals match or wrestling to get to the finals. And uh, so I had tons of time to kill when I was at those youth tournaments because I would usually lose early and then I would find something to do the rest of the day. Right. Um, and then it was in high school. It, for me, it was my sophomore year of high school. We, we got an assistant coach at uh, our high school at North Allegheny. Um, his name's Herb Monroe. He's now a doctor down in uh, Virginia. He's like a superintendent of schools in Virginia, but he came in as an assistant coach and he had wrestled at Lockhaven. And so he was a 118 pounder. And this dude used to just smash me. I yeah. mean, he would pummel me. And so I went from not qualifying to the state championships as a freshman to being a state runner up my sophomore year. And then I went, went out to Fargo and won Fargo right after that. So he, he was really the pivotal point mm-hmm. in my career that really like catapulted me to a different level. Because I imagine after you started wrestling high school kids again, it was like, well, this is nothing compared to that dude. <laughs> yeah. He, he would tell me all the time. He would say, look, when we come into practice, I'm not taking it easy on you. Like I am going to, I am going to push you to the limit every single day. But I promise you when you start competing with me or beating me, these high school guys are going to be nothing. And man, was he spot on. Like yeah. once I was competitive with him, Wrestling 103 pounders in high school was nothing. That was a breeze. Yeah. And so my my success, I started jumping levels pretty quick at that point. Yeah. What is it about Pennsylvania that not only not only is it always the toughest high school wrestling state, but I remember a few years ago, or I can't remember what Olympics it was, but I was listening to one of the announcers, and they said that Pennsylvania had more Olympic athletes than they were represented more Olympic athletes than any other state. So what is it about Pennsylvania that not only produces great wrestlers, but great athletes in general. So I've had this debate with people quite a bit because per capita in wrestling, Oklahoma has more Olympians per capita, right? Okay. Pennsylvania has produced extremely well. I I think it really comes back to this. When, especially in the era that I grew up, late seventies, early eighties in Pittsburgh, right? All the steel mills had died So you had these towns that were just full of unemployed, angry people, right? (laughs) So so what do you do? You put them on the football team. You put them on the wrestling team. They play baseball. Pretty much every sport, there's something for kids to do. And so these uh, growing up, it was a really tough environment. Like you didn't just go to a wrestling tournament and go roll around for a few matches. Kids came out and they wanted to harm you, right? They wanted to take your head off. Uh, And their dads or their uncles or their brothers were in the corner. And when you went to tournament, I mean, it was like everybody was out for blood. Everyone was trying to take home a gold, uh, a trophy. And um, I, I think there was a lot of aspiration to get to college. Like sports, 
was the ticket for a lot of us, myself included, to be able to get an education and move on to the next level. And so uh, it got competitive really fast. I'm talking fifth grade, sixth grade. You knew who the best guys were in the state. You would chase them tournament to tournament. And, uh, and the practice rooms were brutal. I did a podcast just a couple of uh, months ago, and I talked about my youth practices. They were pretty much a Division One practice where the dads that came in and ran the practices. So just a little background on this. I grew up with Kurt Angle, the Olympic champion. I grew up with his nephew. Okay. Right? His dad, who was Kurt's brother, would bring a, a, a group of young kids. We would meet at different high schools, and he would run us through the ringer for two hours, right? And um, that that type of energy in every practice where if guys were running bar arms, you're like literally tearing your, your buddies on bottom that you're running a bar arm on, but you're trying to tear a shoulder out. Yeah. <laughs> you want to win that practice match. You want to <laughs> win in that practice. And so I think it was just that constant lifestyle yeah. um, that helped everybody rise. And it wasn't just wrestling. It was that way in football and baseball and track and field cross country. Like nobody went and competed for fun. Everybody was competing to win titles. Huh? Yeah, well, I guess that would make a big difference. Was it was it tough? Uh, you, you touched on your brother being a, a Pennsylvania legend, uh, one of the first four-time state champs in Pennsylvania history, and and it's tough to win four titles anywhere, but especially in Pennsylvania. Was it was it difficult being? Uh, how much older was he than you? First of all, so he was five years older than I was. Um, so for me, he was just old enough. Or, or he was enough older than I was that I was never going to catch him Yeah, it, throughout that kind of early stage in our life. And um, for me, he was the guy that I was always wanting to emulate because he was winning everything at that time, right? Uh, all of my friends that wrestled, like, they all kind of looked up to my brother and we all wanted to do what he was doing. At that time, when you were excelling in high school sports, you got all the newspaper coverage even TV coverage in Pittsburgh, they would cover, we had high school wrestling matches. There was a, a match that my brother was in. So our high school team at that time was number one in the country. St. Edwards in Ohio was number two. And in my brother's junior year, we went to St. Ed's. They stole the, they stole the gymnasium out. So there was probably about 1500 in their gymnasium jam packed. We beat them in Ohio. The following year, they came to North Allegheny. We sold out the gymnasium that sat 2000. Then they televised it or they, they direct lined it into the auditorium and they sold another thousand seats in the auditorium. Wow. Right. And so that was the, that was kind of the environment and the atmosphere. It's like what you see going on at Penn state right now, um, that it was a microcosm of that in our high school in the early, uh, late eighties, early nineties. Um, so it just it raised everybody's intensity level and competitiveness uh, to get out there and compete. Yeah, was your were you a pinner too? Like I know you pinned in the NCAA finals. Were you always a pinner? Because it seemed like your brother was a pinner, right? Ty, yeah, he was big time pinner. Yeah, I, I saw the Dapper Dan match where he pinned TJ Jaworski, and uh, it's pretty cool, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I was not. Um, 
I kind of, so, so going back to my successes, like when I was in youth, junior high and high school, once I made that switch in high school, my first couple of national championships that I won, I won by just a few points, like five to two and seven to seven to three and those sort of things. And the older that I got, and especially once I got into college, um, there was Wade Chalice. So if anybody knows the name Wade Chalice, Wade was like the pinning king in the 1970s. He wrestled at Clarion University. So as kids, we always heard about Wade Chalice and we'd go to clinics. Wade's philosophy was, if I can pin you, I save my energy for the next match, right? I can end it quickly and get it over with. And so it wasn't until later in my career that I started realizing you know, if I put everything, if I get a guy onto his back and I put everything I can into it, it's yeah. going to end it a little bit quicker and save myself for that next match. So that was that was kind of one of those philosophies that we, we were um, brought up with is that it should be in your arsenal. You should know how to pin from every position. I just wasn't good enough with it yeah. as I was coming up through. I, I had a knack for getting people on their back like in the first period, like a five-point move. But I didn't have a lot of pins. I was 30 and 0 my senior year, and I had seven pins uh, <laughs> of uh, high school. I, I, um, I've heard this, and now that I'm in coaching, we talk about it. But you actually have to practice pinning, right? When yeah. you're in practice and you're going over, you might be able to get somebody to their back. But the art of actually pinning them, getting their shoulders down, mm-hmm. the guys that do it, they're fun to watch, right? Because yeah. they, you can see... There, it's like a chess match going on that once they get that guy into those pinning combinations, bam, they get it done. Yeah. Did you feel any extra pressure being Ty Moore's little brother? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it like it gave me mental uh, problems growing yeah. up. Um, it wasn't until my freshman year, part of that beginning of that sophomore year, that my dad actually sat me down. And eventually, I, I had taken a loss from a guy named Jeremy Hunter that he ended up being a, a national champion at Penn State. Yeah. So we were we had wrestled quite a bit going up through the youth. And I lost a match to him, and I just, I lost it, man. I lost my shit, right? And my dad brought me home and sat me down. He said, look, you just, you're not taking the right perspective on this. You want to go out and win, so that you can try and copy what your brother your brother did, and you got to stop doing that. You got to figure out why you're going out to wrestle, right? I think it's like a, for me, it was a life lesson, and it's something I try and pass on to the guys on my team. Mm-hmm. Figure out why you're stepping out there onto that mat. There's got to be something that drives you internally. If you're doing it for your coach or your parent or a, for somebody else, you're just not going to have that same drive, yeah. and so. That conversation led me to start writing a whole different set of goals. And so all of my goals became freestyle oriented. And so then, then my success hit at, at Fargo, the, the junior nationals in freestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, it led Coach Smith at Oklahoma State to recruit me because I had won two Fargo championships. I still hadn't won a Pennsylvania State championship oh, wow. yet. Right. And so coach recruited me to Oklahoma state. And, um, I think he felt like he could take my folk style and sharpen it and make it better, which ultimately he did. Right. And so, um, some people, they kind of chuckle when they look at my, 
accolades because I had won Fargo, which was an extremely hard tournament to win in yeah. the mid 90s. I had won that three times, but I only won one Pennsylvania state title. Yeah. So kind of goes opposite of what most people do. Well, and it also goes to show how freaking tough it is to win a Pennsylvania state title. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you better have you, you better have your stuff together. Yeah, for sure. So your junior year, how did you do your junior year in high school? Uh, junior year, I made it to the States. I lost in like the second round. I ended up coming back and taking third and beating the guy that had knocked me off in the early rounds um, on my way to that third place. Okay. So I was sec- in high school. I went second, third, and then one in my senior year. Okay. But that was good to get that monkey off your back, huh? Oh, man. It was like uh, leaving for Oklahoma State. And knowing that, okay, I finally accomplished that was the big goal, winning the Pennsylvania State title. Winning the national championships were great also, but there was just something about winning that Pennsylvania State title. And a name I mentioned earlier, Mark Angle, Mark was the same way. He was actually a four-time junior national finalist, three-time champion. So he and I were always training together, but there was just something about that Pennsylvania State title. He and I just... We couldn't get it done, and then yeah. we finally did it in our senior season. Yeah, that's awesome. What what uh, what made you choose Oklahoma State? Were there any other any other contenders, or was it always going to be Oklahoma State for you? Uh, no, it was. Uh, so I was looking at Penn State, <coughs> Cornell, and Oklahoma State. Those were pretty much the only three. Um, so at that time, Coach Smith had just come out of you know his his freestyle success. Rob Cole was just taking over at Cornell. And Penn State was was Penn State. Like every every kid in Pennsylvania, at some point, puts Penn State on their list. Um, for me, my so a weird twist of relationships. My brother Ty had gone off and wrestled at North Carolina, and at that time, the assistant coach was Kendall Cross. And okay. so Kendall, who was an Oklahoma State guy, uh, he saw me winning the junior nationals. And he sat down with me at one point and said, hey, what schools are you going to start looking at for colleges? So I ran through my list and he said, well, you mentioned Oklahoma State. I'm an alumni. I really think you should should take a hard look there. And here's the things that will work well for you with your wrestling style. Here's why I think Oklahoma State would be good. And so ultimately, his conversation definitely helped start to steer my path towards Oklahoma State. I took a visit out there. I had a blast on my visit. It was uh, Pat Smith, uh, who most people know. Like Pat was just coming off of his four NCAA titles. Eric Guerrero and I took our recruiting trip out there. Um, or I'm, yeah, it was Eric Guerrero, Mark Angle, and I are out there on our recruiting visit. And Pat Smith took us noodling. Part, Pat Smith and Mark Smith took us noodling. And if anybody doesn't know what noodling is, you're from Missouri. You know what it is. Yeah. So they took us out to this pond super late at night and we had had a few drinks. And uh, so they, they're teaching us, you go underwater and you feel along the, the wall until you can find a hole big enough. And then you're going to stick your hand in the, in the mouth of a catfish. And then you're going to try and pull this thing out and run yeah. it up. <clears throat> and I can remember thinking, am I going to die? <laughs> like, am I going to get down there and this thing's going to be bigger than I am and I can't get out, right? So, of course, I do it. And we had a blast that night. We didn't we didn't pull any fish out. But the night ended by us walking back to the pickup truck that we had gone in 
and the pickup truck had already taken off. Mark Smith had already jumped in and left. So we literally were out in the woods. It's probably 3.30 in the morning. We have no idea where we're at. We have no idea how to get home or anything like that. They eventually came back and picked us up. It was like a practical <laughs> joke on us, right? The uh, the recruits. Um, but I came home from that trip. I felt like that's where I wanted to be the next four or five years of my life and ultimately made my decision. To win. Cool. Do you still talk to Mark Smith? Um, I, I have communicated with him over Facebook, but I, I really have lost contact with him over the years. Yeah, we're fa- I, had, I had a very good relationship when I was with him yeah. there at Oklahoma State. We're Facebook friends, and he seems like a cool dude, and he was going to do my podcast a long time ago, and then and then I can't remember what happened, but we never got around to it, and I'm like, man, I got to get that guy on my podcast. I got to get a yeah. Smith on my podcast. Um, yeah, Mark, Mark was a lot of fun when we were in college. Yeah, you guys were um, seniors together, weren't you? Or Yeah, we were seniors together. He, he went to Oklahoma State a year before uh, myself and Eric Guerrero, so he came in in the class of 94, Eric and I came in in the class of 95, but then Mark had redshirted. Eric and I never redshirted. And so I think we were all sophomores, juniors, and seniors together there at Oklahoma State. I think we had three seasons together. Okay, cool. Yeah, I uh, I really – John Smith is one of my favorite people to watch wrestle. What What is he – what's that guy like? How would you describe um, John time, Smith? When, when John, like, to, Coach Smith – um, now that it's been 25 years, um, when I first got there, he was just the ultimate competitor, right? He wanted to win every duel meet, every match, every practice. He wanted us to win and he wanted to win. Right. Um, I graduated 99 and I went and coached at a couple other places. I went and coached at the university of Pittsburgh, I went back, I went to Norman, Oklahoma, I coached at OU at, at the rival school. And then I came back to Oklahoma State in 2004. And it was really interesting when I left in 99. And by the time I came back in 2004, he had changed a lot, right? And, and I tell people it was like he went from when I was there competing, I felt like he was a, an older brother, right? He kind of mentored us like he was the old brother. He just made us tough, made us hard. By the time I got back in 2004, and, and by this time, this is when they started winning a lot of team titles, I felt like he was more of a dad or a grandfather, right? In the way that he mentored the guys on the team, it was different by 2004 as it was when I left in 99. So he's an incredible guy. He, he was an incredible mentor for me. Um, my dad passed away my sophomore year of college in 96, and Coach Smith really helped me in in terms of like being that father figure mentor when I was at Oklahoma State. Um, He was an incredible technician as a coach. Um, As I went on and wrestled internationally, he was a great um, mentor and friend. You know, he would sit down with you and say, look, if you're going over to this tournament, here's the mindset that you need to take. Expect the, the Europeans or the Russians to be doing these things, right? Um, so our relationship kind of evolved over time, but he still, and he always will be Coach Smith, right? He is a legend of the sport, and so it's hard to, it's hard not to see him as the guy on top of the podium all the time. Yeah. So, Did he ever wrestle with you guys? He did. Um, in my first couple of years there, 
he was still active in the room and he would go live goes with us. He would drill with us on, on occasion. And so uh, one of my experiences, I just talked about this on a, on a flow wrestling podcast, but my last actual hands-on experience with coach, we were doing an individual drill in the morning and um, he was, it started out as a technical drill and then it got really intense. And um, his, he, he was working with me on shooting a low single, right? And so it was his bread and butter. And he, he never really taught his stuff in our team practices. He really focused on like what we needed to be doing as a group. And a lot of people were surprised by this. He didn't spend a lot of time coaching the low single. If you did an individual session with him and he felt like that needed to be in your arsenal, then he would really hone in on it, but on a one-on-one basis so that you can pick up all the details and really spend a lot of time with it. Yeah. Do you have a favorite John Smith story? Um, you, you had asked me that message, and uh, I don't know if this is a John Smith story, or I think it's more of like an Oklahoma State story. So we were traveling to Iowa State for a dual meet, right? And this is back in the day when you weighed in the night before. So normally, for me, I was 118-pounder. If I woke up the day of weigh-ins, which is the day before the competition, if I weighed 128 in the morning and we were going to weigh in in the evening, I was good to go. Yeah. Like for me to drop 10 pounds of water weight was, was not a big deal. That was two workouts. So we go through all of our travel from Stillwater, Oklahoma to Ames, Iowa. We show up at Ames, and we go over to their practice room, and some of their guys are coming out specifically Chris Bono and Chris, Chris disagrees with me on this, but Chris had come out of the workout. He was there 150 pounder at the time and maybe he was 42, but regardless, he came out of the workout. He saw that Oklahoma state was there and we were going to be going in for a weight cut. So they send us down to a locker room to get changed and get ready for the workout. By the time that we come back up to their, their wrestling room, now all their guys are gone their wrestling room is blowing cold air. So it's like maybe 65 degrees in their wrestling room and the air conditioning is blowing hard in there, right? They locked their office door that had a radio in it and they left the radio on a static radio station. So it was loud and just static noise in the wrestling room. Wow. So we went in there and within three or four minutes, like, Myself and Guerrero, Hardale Moore, we're looking around. We're like, this isn't going to work. Like, we're not going to sweat anything in here. It's an ice box. And you got this noise that was like almost brain jarring. And so coach, <laughs> coach went from, hey, let's go get a workout. Make sure you got your stuff. Bring your plastics. Bring your sweats. He realizes what had happened. And he got pissed. Like, boom, in a heartbeat. So we're all trying to figure out what are we going to do? Are we going to go into another part of their facility and see if we can just jump rope or go turn the showers on and maybe get hot showers and just sweat it out? What ended up happening was our heavyweight, a guy named Ben Lee at the time, I realized that the wiring to the speakers was accessible. So Ben put me on his shoulders. I had to literally stand on his shoulders because the speakers were probably like, 11, 12 feet up in the air. So I'm up there. I rip 
I rip the speaker wire out of the speaker. He, we'd go to the next speaker. There was like three or four in their room. I ripped all the speaker wires out, right? We somehow, we got, a, we got their um, thermostat. We got their thermostat switched around. It had like a lockbox on it. So we got that off and we got the thermostat working. And after about 30, 35 minutes, the heat was back in there, right? And we got our workout. We must have spent two hours there that night, two and a half hours. So we, we all get our weight down. We show up the next day for the duel. And now Coach Douglas, Bobby Douglas, Bono, all of those guys, they're pissed because they have no music in their room, right? Their thermostat box is broke. <laughs> and so that's probably one of my most favorite stories. And, and what I really liked about it was Coach Smith, when we went into the room, he was just as pissed as we were. He was like one of the guys trying to figure out how are we going to get the heat back up in here? How are we going to get this noise off? And we got it done and we got our weight off and went and did our duel. So Yeah. Is he a funny guy? He seems pretty funny to me. Yeah, he is. He is. Um, he, he had a, a really good ability to keep the mood light, right? Like if, if we were um, – Here's another, I'll try and keep the story quick, but we went to the University of Iowa and I think we were one and they were two or they were two and we were one, but nonetheless, it's a big dual meet. And we did our weigh-ins, we're warmed up for the match. They take us to what's going to be our locker room. And I kid you not, they give us, it has to be the smallest room in Carver Hawkeye Arena. It's got to be a 10 by 10 room. There's nowhere for you to put your bags in more than three or four guys to stand in this room. And it's the whole Oklahoma State entourage. You've got starters, you've got backups, you've got coaches. And Coach Smith, uh, who probably could have gotten pissed about it and tried to get us riled up about it, he brought us in. He said, gentlemen, we're at the University of Iowa. We've got a huge dual meet getting ready to begin. This is how they're treating us, right? So how are you guys going to take this? Are you going to let them stuff us into a corner and treat us like we're not worthy of being here for the dual meet? Or are we going to go out and kick some ass, right? And ultimately, we went out and we won the dual meet. Nice. In Carver Hawkeye, that's not easy to do. In Carver Hawkeye. In in that dual meet, it was like 14,000 people, and uh, the Oklahoma State fans couldn't come up for it because there had been a blizzard, and so most of the fans couldn't drive up. There was maybe 15 or 20 Oklahoma State fans that had come early before the blizzard hit. And so 14,500 people, and we had about 20 people in the stands. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I one of my I like I watch a lot of Oklahoma State duels, and one of my favorite things to do is just watch him in the corner. Just some of the yeah. faces he makes and some of the, you know, just stuff like, I mean, he just kills me. I think he's so funny, and, and I don't know that he's yeah. trying to be funny. He just is. And yeah, I, he's he's also funny in the corner, like while he's coaching, the things that he'll say yeah. as the matches are going on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think if anybody ever mic'd him up and were able to catch some of the stuff, it would be a comedy routine. Yeah, the, the, I forget what duel he was in, but I think it was against Iowa this last year, and it wasn't going well for him the first few matches, and and they're dis- disputing some point, and he's like, "We need one, come on." <laughs> Yeah, I met him a few years ago at NCA's, and uh, you know he always wears kind of baggy clothes. 
so you can't really tell. But when I, I shook his hand and I put my hand on him, the dude is still just a rock. I mean, I wonder yeah. if I wonder how how well he could still wrestle, you know, if he chose to. Yeah, and, and, and now this is it's twenty twenty, but in in two thousand four, uh, th- that was the year that Jamil. Kelly made the team and ended up winning a silver medal. And yeah. Guerrero made the team. Cormier made the team. I, I was still training at Oklahoma State. Muhammad Lawal was training at Oklahoma State. Um, Steve Mako was training at Oklahoma State. But Coach Smith still got on. That was 2004. So it's, uh, what, eight years after he had competed? Or no, uh, 12 years after he had competed? Yeah. He still got on the mats in 2004 and was able to compete with a guy like Jamil Kelly at that time. So it was pretty impressive even then. Now in 2020, I don't know. I, I would I would want to know if he's going to step on the mat, I would want to know who he's wrestling because my my bet might still go on him. Yeah. Like it still might go on Coach Smith. Yeah, I heard a story. I can't remember who was telling the story. I think it may have been uh, – I can't remember who was telling the story, but he was talking about how Pat Smith was was uh, wrestling Mark and, and – kind of working him over or whatever, and then John just starts, like, and he's way smaller than Pat, just starts rolling out his ankles and, like, slowly warming up, and uh, and then he put it on Pat, and uh, I can't remember who's telling that story, but it was a great story. I was just like, man, that guy is so freaking good at wrestling. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a, it was a family affair, that's for sure. Yeah. It was a family affair. Tell me about your college career at Oklahoma State. I know you're an NCAA champion in 98, and you got second. Or no, you got third your senior year and fourth as a sophomore. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, I, I took fourth as a sophomore. Yeah. So uh, my my college career, my freshman year, I came in and started right away. Um, I didn't have a very successful freshman year. I qualified for the nationals. I think I went like twenty nine and fifteen. Uh, I had I had a slew of losses my freshman year, um, and I had to, I had to do some serious maturing between that freshman year and that sophomore year. Uh, I think one of the big things that really stands out to me about my college career, it was this summer after that freshman year, um, Coach Perry, so Mark Perry Sr., Mark Perry who wrestled for Iowa, his dad was our assistant coach. He's Coach Smith's brother-in-law. He took uh, Eric Guerrero and I, I think Mark Smith was on the trip, maybe one other guy. We were part of the USA wrestling team. And we went and spent two weeks in South Korea. And so in that summer training, they basically, I mean, we trained twice a day for two weeks straight with some of the highest level South Korean freestyle guys that they had. And so I would say that was really a pivotal point in my college career. My sophomore year, I came back. I lost early in the season at the St. Louis Open. And, and that was the same weekend that my, my dad ended up going into the hospital and passing away. After that loss, that weekend, I didn't lose again until the NCAA championships. Uh, I lost in the semifinals to a guy named Jesse Whitmer from, from Iowa, who I had beaten earlier in the season. And so I ended up fourth at, at the NCAAs my sophomore year. My junior year... I went through some ups and downs. I think I lost twice or three times in my junior year, but I ended up winning the, the, the nationals. And one of the guys I had lost to was the guy I, I beat in the finals, David Morgan from Michigan state. Um, my senior year, um, 
my senior year is when the weight classes officially became 125 pounds. Okay. So I was 118 pounder. My senior year, they were officially 125, two hour weigh-ins and all that sort of thing. Um, my senior year, looking back on it, I think I was struggling just making weight in the two hour weigh-ins at 125 pounds flat. Um, that I just didn't have the, the energy that I needed. I wasn't doing it right. That's the first thing I'll say. And I say to my athletes all the time, in terms of managing weight, I wasn't managing. I was cutting weight and cutting weight the wrong way. And in that senior year, I ended up losing to Stephen Abbas in the semifinals. The, the official scorebook says three to three. So we went through regulation and the score was tied three to three. Then we went into the overtime, which no score happened. And then they flipped a coin. I chose bottom. And he dropped to my ankle twice, and they stalemated it twice. And then the third time, he got hit for stalling as, like, the last few seconds were ticking out. And so I lost three to three in the semis. And then I came back and took third uh, there my senior year. So that was, in in a short synopsis, that was kind of my college career. Yeah, well, it's a really good one, and I just watched your, uh, before I did the podcast, I'd seen your NCAA Finals match before, um, and I remember how, I I just remembered your celebration more than anything, I remember how fired up it made me, and I I watched the whole match again half an hour ago, and uh, first of all, what a great match, you hit that five point uh, inside trip right off the bat, which by the way, I wish I would have known an inside trip when I was wrestling, it was just one of those moves that I think I would have been good at. And every time I see someone hit it, I'm like, damn it, I wish I would have known that move. Um, but he jumped out to a five-point lead. He was 44-0 and zero when you wrestled him. And then when you pinned him, and that celebration you did, dude, I mean, I don't even know you, and it makes me tear up. Even now, I was watching, I was just like, I got all fired up, and I got those, you know, uh, goosebump, goosebump feelings, you know. I just was like, man, that was the best freaking... I've seen a lot of people win NCAs, but that was the best emotional thing that I'd seen. You know, you pounding the mat like that and everything. What What do you remember most about the finals match? Uh, it, it, so a slew of emotions, right? Technically, I just remember, I felt like as I was going out there onto the mat, it, it, this sounds really cheesy, but I literally I felt like there was no way I was going to lose that match. Yeah. It was just no chance in hell that that guy was going to come away with more points than me in that seven minutes or however long it was going to take. Yeah. Um, here's a couple of things about that match. So you had mentioned the inside trip. So when I was, when I was young, there was a guy that had wrestled at North Allegheny. His name was Doug Wyland. Doug Wyland had made the NCAA finals for the university of North Carolina, 118 pounds. He lost to a guy named Jack Kubo. Right. In that match, uh, Dougie went for an inside trip and he tore his ACL. Okay. In, in the NCAA finals. And so as a little kid, when Doug would come home from North Carolina, I was able to watch and learn from him who obviously attempted it at the highest level, you know, the NCAA finals. And so that just became a part of one of those things growing up that it was a skill that I had learned, right? So there was the emotion in that match. No North Allegheny wrestler up until that time had won an NCAA title. We have a storied high school tradition at North Allegheny. 
but we never had an NCAA champion. Oh. And so there was that emotion going into that match. Um, I had mentioned earlier, my dad passed away my sophomore year and it was really, it was kind of unfortunate. There was three of us that wrestled in college. I had an older brother, Tommy, that wrestled at Appalachian state. My brother, Ty wrestled at North Carolina. My dad only got to watch those guys wrestle one time in college. By the time that I came to college, he was retired. So he moved to Stillwater. He watched my whole freshman year. Nice. And as I said earlier, my freshman year was horrible. I mean, that was, I took a, 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 a thumping for five months. And at the beginning of my sophomore year is when he passed away. So he never even really got to see my college or my wrestling career really take off. And so there was the emotion from that, like knowing that I accomplished something that he probably would have been front row. Had he, I guess, I mean, in, he, he was there. He was front row. But just knowing that emotion was carried into that match. Um, the, the NCAAs hadn't been close to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for quite a while. So Cleveland was only two hours away. In that arena, which was a small arena, 12,000 people, I had a, an army of family and friends that had watched me wrestling my whole life. And so I felt like there at that nationals, there was probably 500 ticket holders or a thousand ticket holders that were near and dear to our family. So it was like, I was getting to wrestle a home meet or a home match. Awesome. So a lot of, a lot of emotion in that match. Yeah. And, and I didn't realize at the time that your, that your dad had passed away, but when you, you thanked him at the end, you know, it, you know, you got a little choked up about it and just the whole thing was just freaking awesome to watch, man. So thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I love when I get to see stuff like that and, and I, I turned into such a nerd about it, you know, I just, you know, and, and it also, whenever I watch something like that, like I get a little nervous before I talk to people that I respect in wrestling, especially and, and, but I'll watch like their matches and instead of being nervous about it, it gets me like, this is really cool. I'm getting ready to talk to this person, you know, and that whenever, whenever I'm grateful for things, uh, I tend to not be near as nervous, whatever the situation is. If I can just step back and be like, hey, this is cool. This isn't something to be nervous about. This is just a cool thing that you get to do. And, and uh, so anyway, uh, I say all that to say it was... I, I, would say, I would say that about life, right? We, we, have a, we have a mental coach, a sport coach at American University, and that's one thing we hit on all the time. If you go through your daily life and you're grateful for either the opportunity you're in, you're grateful for maybe the people you're surrounded by, you're grateful for whatever you're about to take part in, right? The, the, the stress, the anxiety, the fears, when you're grateful about something, all that stuff seems to melt away. And then you can just be you, yeah. right? And take, take full advantage of the situation. Yeah. Not too long ago, I walked into the Laugh Factory and Dave Chappelle was on stage. And at first I was kind of nervous. And then I thought, dude, there's nothing to be nervous about. You're on the same show as Dave Chappelle. That's awesome. Just be happy about it, you know. And yeah. when I can do that, I'm I'm a lot better. And when I when I you know get in my head, I'm I'm not quite as good. But um, I would assume for you, getting up on that stage has to be similar to a wrestling match. Oh, right? like you're worried about, am I going to nail this this uh, you know 
the punchline to a joke or do I have all my material organized and ready to go? It's yeah. kind of like walking out to a wrestling match. Am I going to be able to finish this takedown or this technique? So yeah, the, you got some practice. The, the feeling I get is the exact same before I go on stage and I've been doing it over 20 years. It's still the same feeling as before wrestling matches, you know, and, and my friend Greg Warren was like, you just got to let your talent take over. And, uh, that that's usually what I do, but the feeling of like uh, when they say your name, it's almost like when you put on your leg band. You know, it's like, well, there's no time to be nervous now. It's on. You know, and it yeah. just it just goes away. And sometimes I can be so nervous, like I don't even feel like I'm going to be able to talk. And as soon as I say my name, I'll do this thing under my breath. I'll say it out loud, but it's under my breath. I'll go, "That's right, you bitches." <laughs> everybody in their place yeah and it's something about saying that you know it's uh almost like that over the top movie where he puts his hat on backwards like all right it's on now you know uh how long did you wrestle after college so i finished uh college in 99 and i wrestled up through the 2004 olympic trials and so uh i guess it was five years because finishing college in 99 i went to the u.s open uh, that spring and uh, 2000 Olympic trials were in Dallas, Texas and wrestled in those. I ended up third at the, the 2000 Olympic trials. Um, and then world teams, 2001, 2002, 2003, I was, you know, intimately involved with all of those and trying to make the world team. And I was on the, our national team. And then in 2004, I, I came to that crossroads that I think everyone gets to at some point. And I said, okay, Lord, like I'm, I'm Catholic and, I put all my faith in, in God and I just said, Lord, if, if this is meant to be, then I want to enjoy this and I want to take the ride and see where it goes. But when it's, when it's done, if it doesn't work out, I'm ready to change gears. And so in 2004, I ended up third at those Olympic trials as well. Um, I lost to some of the guys you interviewed. Uh, it was interesting when I was looking through the wrestlers you've interviewed, these are guys like I stepped on the mats with and, and now we're all very good friends, but like Sammy Hansen and Eric Aiken and you had Jerry Abbas on his younger brother, Steven and I, like these were the guys that I wanted to be the best in the world. And I had to overcome those guys to get there. Right. Yeah. And, and unfortunately I never did it at the senior level. I won the world championships at, at the university level, which is, which is now what's called the U 23 world championships. So those guys were all, very involved and intimate in my success at a world level, right? Because I was, every day I walked into the room, I was trying to beat Eric Aiken and I was trying to figure out how to beat Sammy Henson and how to stay on top of Stephen Abbas. Like every practice, there was a purpose for walking in the room because you knew those guys were in a different room somewhere else and they were trained to do the same thing to me. Yeah. What was your international weight class? So when I came out of college, it was 54 kilos, which was 119 pounds. Okay. And then uh, as I got older, they changed the, the weights from 54 kilos to 55 kilos. So then I got to weigh 121 pounds. Yeah. Um, and that's where I ended up finishing my career was 55 kilos at the uh, Olympic trials in 2004. Yeah, I really missed the 118 pound weight class. I, it kind of bothers me that they've, 
you know, taken away the sport from the smaller, the smallest guys, and they've taken it away from really big guys. You know, like if yeah. if you're a, a monster like Chris Taylor, you can't wrestle anymore. And if you're a little guy like Bobby Weaver, you can't wrestle anymore either. And uh, yeah. I used to love watching those guys, 105 and 114 and all that. And yeah, there, there's a really interesting take on that. So if you look at the pedigree of coaches that are either at the college level or at the world level, not just from the United States but other countries, um, there is a very interesting track or trend that a lot of those wrestlers are like 150, 160 pounds and below, right? Um, I agree with you. The 118-pound weight class, um, there was a style and, and a technique of wrestling that you don't quite see at 125. I mean, it's still there a little bit, but it's not as fluid and explosive as it was when you had 118 pounders. And that also, you know, shedding light on the international. So there used to be 105 and a half, 114 and a half pounds. Those are all gone now as well. The lowest weight's 125 and a half in freestyle. So there is something to be said for those lower weight classes and what happens long-term, I think because you have to spend so much time on the technical aspects of wrestling, it drives a lot of us into the coaching realm just because we have a, we've got a lot of knowledge. And it's not to say that heavyweights don't have technique. Sure. Um, if I were talking to Daniel Cormier, I might tell Daniel or Steve Mako, I don't think big guys have technique, but uh, in jest. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's something to be said for the lower weights and the middle weights and how many have moved on in the coaching realm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild when you line up the 77 division one coaches and you look at what weight classes they competed. There is a ton that are below that, that 160 uh, pound mark. Yeah. It seems like the 25 pounders of today are like kind of taller, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the 118 pound, I mean, those guys are just freaking, you know, just, they weren't very tall, most of them, but they were just beasts. I mean, I remember watching them and be like, how the hell does that guy weigh 118 pounds? And then you see him in person, you're like, oh, well, he's 5'2", but they're freaking, those guys are freaking studs, man. Um, who was the toughest guy you've ever wrestled in your career? Not necessarily the best. I mean, he could be the best, too, but... Actual toughest, I would probably go with Sammy Henson. Yeah. Um... So Sammy and my brother Ty were the same age. And so I watched a lot of Sammy, like when he was winning the junior nationals, which back then was at, at UNI, University of Northern Iowa. Sammy was, was at the top of the game. And then in college, he was at the top of the game at 118 pounds. And so the first time I got to wrestle with Sammy was actually at the Olympic Training Center. And I remember the first time I, I put hands on him and we went live. I thought, oh, dear God, <laughs> this guy didn't have hands. He had clubs, right? Yeah. And it was just, it was like the wind-up uh, Energizer Bunny. Like, once you wound them up, the guy didn't stop for a two, two-and-a-half, three-hour practice. He went hard the whole time. Um, internationally, once I finally got a chance to compete against him, um, the first time that I actually competed against him, um, I got a win against him. I beat him up at the Winnipeg Open. And uh, the next two times that we wrestled, he got he got the better of me at the U.S. Open and at the Olympic Trials in 2004. But he was like I always felt like in my training, if I when when the matches came, one of those little voices in my head would say, 
you're, you are ready to beat Sammy Henson today. I was able to step on the mat. I felt like I could literally take on anybody. And so just because of his physical style and technique that he wrestled with, he was, I would say he was the toughest guy I competed against. Yeah. Speaking of short, stocky dudes, I mean, good Lord. Yeah. I met him at yeah. the airport once, and when I shook his hand, I was like, man, this guy's just made out of freaking rocks. Um, so what was the uh, hardest loss you've ever – actually, I wanted to ask you about uh, Eric Aiken, too. What was he like to wrestle? Eric was really savvy. I mean, he was uh, – you had to be really careful with Eric because when you would get to a position that you thought you had the upper hand in – Eric had a way of flipping that around. And when I started training with him, Eric and I became really good friends when I was on the national team in those years. And I would drill and work out with him a lot. And what I found out was he was a master at, we didn't call it play wrestling back then, but he was a master at figuring out the nuances of every position. And he would come into a drill session and instead of just working on one thing the whole time, he would work on 10 different counters to that one position yeah. and where he would slip his hips or how he would position his body to stuff your head and be able to, you know, stop your takedown. He was just really good with it. And so Eric was one of those guys when I competed against him, I knew I had to be on my game all the way through the match because if you didn't and you just got in deep on an, uh, on an attack, he would flip that around on you so quickly, huh. and so you had to be you had to be aware of his savvy uh, style when he competed. Yeah, the thing I always admired about Eric was, um, I mean, he was on my kids' team, and he was about five years older than me. But he, even if he was losing a match, he would just keep trying. If he was working on a move, he would just keep trying it over and over and over, and it, you know, he'd keep getting taken down with it. But he didn't care. He'd just keep at yeah. it, and a lot of times, you know, he would lose sometimes, but. It, it didn't matter to him. He just wanted to get better. And I, I remember seeing him get beat pretty good a couple times, and he would turn those losses around within like a couple of months. Um, so I was just curious because he's who I looked up to growing up. So it's always cool to talk to people who actually knew him. What was the toughest loss of your career probably? Uh, wow. It's I was, as most wrestlers would say, it's so hard to put your finger on just one of them, right? Because there were there are so many losses. I think back on my career that just felt like it was a stake in the heart, right? Yeah. You either put so much effort into a preparation for an event or a match, and when you fell short, it's just like somebody ripped your heart out, right? Um, for me, if I had to put my 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 finger on one match. Um, I would probably have to say it was those Olympic trials in 2004 because I really felt like I had done everything possible to put myself in the contingency to make that Olympic team, right? Mm -hmm. And so for for people that don't know, um, if you you didn't win the U.S. Open, if you won the U.S. Open, you got to sit out for the finals of the Olympic trials. If you didn't, which that was me, uh, you got put in a mini-tournament. And so going into it, I felt really good because I felt like I was more of a marathon wrestler. And so if I go through the mini tournament and things are going my way, I felt like I was going to have the momentum to take on Stephen Abbas, um, who he and I wrestled a number of times and we had gone back and forth on. I felt like I was prepared for it, right? So the mini tournament plays out and I'm in the finals against Sammy. 
and I'm beating Sammy in, I don't know, there's maybe a minute, a minute and a half left. Um, a little bit of a backstory. The match before that, I'm wrestling Jeremy Hunter, a guy that I had wrestled since youth. And in the match with Jeremy Hunter, I felt a big pop in my knee. And I didn't, I didn't want anybody to check it in between that first match and, and Sammy's match. So I'm wrestling Sammy's match and I'm winning the match. And I just got to a position where I just literally felt like I had, my leg was not underneath of me. Sammy ended up taking me down. He ended up turning me from that and he ultimately won the match. Mm-hmm. And that ended my run to try and make the 2004 Olympics. And, and at that time, I had really put everything into it. And I had already told myself, if it goes well, then I'm going for gold. If it doesn't, I'm ready to be done wrestling. And so I knew when that match finished, I was ready to move on to the next stage in my life. I didn't know what that next stage was. I just knew it wasn't going to be with wrestling shoes on it. Yeah. And so that was probably the hardest one. Yeah. Well, I know you've won a ton of matches in your life. Is there one that stands out as like your favorite victory of all time or one that meant the most to you? Oh, man. Um, it seemed like that NCAA final meant quite a bit to you. Those are, those are really hard. Uh, I would probably say that they're, they're close to one another, but the, the NCAA championship was big. Like I had said, there were so many people there in Cleveland that year. It just felt like my family was there to be able to witness that. And a lot of my wrestling... In, in the uh, early and mid-90s, there was no internet, right? Yeah. So when I had won national championships before that, whether it was uh, you know Fargo's or if it was the 20 and under nationals, all of those age group nationals that I had won, my family was never there. Yeah. The NCAAs was the first time my family was there to see me win a national title. So I would say that one was extremely special. And then... The, the close second to it. So my goal and my aspiration was always to be a world champion. And in 2000, I had the opportunity to represent Team USA at the University World Championships in Tokyo. And uh, I ended up winning gold there. And so that moment of like standing on the podium and they give you your gold medal and you've got guys from Russia in Iran or Turkey, you know, that was who I ended up beating in the finals those guys are there on the podium. There's just an incredible feeling to know that all that time and effort finally paid off. And you can actually say I'm the best in the world at what I do for that one split second in time, you got to stand there and feel it. So the the metals tarnish, right? Like the old cliche goes, the metals tarnish, but the know that you have that title is priceless. Yeah. I always liked having the brackets more than the than the medals, and and now nowadays, gosh, I mean, kids win like a kids tournament. They get a four foot tall. <laughs> like, man, you didn't get that kind of crap when I was a kid. You got a medal about that big around, and and uh, yeah. And what's funny is right now, most of us probably don't even know where a lot of that stuff is. Like th- these things behind me, these were literally in boxes in the basement. And when we found out we're not allowed to go back to our offices at American University because of COVID, I wanted to put something behind me for opportunities like this. And so I started digging through those old tubs that are full of plaques and trophies. And I hadn't put my eyes on them in a decade or 
you know, 15 years and you start digging through and you remember, wow, I remember wrestling that guy or man, I remember making weight for that competition. Like all of those things that led up to that plaque or that medal. Yeah. Um, It's pretty cool. What's the uh, toughest thing you think you've ever dealt with in your life, whether it was on the mat or off? It's definitely off the mat. Um, so I told you earlier, I was the youngest of seven kids, right? Um, I don't know if it's unfortunate or fortunate. I think right now at my stage in my life, I'm 44 years old. I would say I was fortunate. I lost my dad in an early age. I was 20 years old when my dad passed away. That was very, um, it was emotional, as I think most people would say, losing a parent at 20 years old. It was very unexpected how he passed away. He had a massive heart attack. They went in to do triple bypass, and he could, he never recovered from surgery, and he, he passed. And so dealing with that at 20 years old was extremely difficult, but very helpful in my life moving forward. Yeah. Um, fast forward a few years after that, in 2002, I had a brother, Tommy. Uh, he had wrestled at Appalachian State. He went through some tough things personally, and he ended up committing suicide in 2002. And so that was another really tough one. Um, for me personally, I had I had just lost in, in a weird situation, turn of events. I lost to Stephen Abbas to make the world team. So I was in the finals for the world team. We finished that on a Sunday. I got back to Norman, Oklahoma. I was training out at OU at the time. And on Tuesday morning, I got a phone call that he had passed. He had killed himself. Wow. And so uh, I was I was actually in the process. Because of the loss to Stephen Abbas, there was a weird – the rules had got called wrong. And so I was actually in conversation about filing a complaint with the USOC about the match having been scored wrong. And then you get a phone call that your brother passed. And so instantaneously, like the wrestling disappeared. I could have cared less about the wrestling and had to go home to Pittsburgh to deal with that. And then fast forward in 2014, my brother Ty, who I've talked quite a bit about, um, he unfortunately had gone down a path of alcoholism. And in 2014, he he drank himself to death. And so those, those three experiences, they're all related to death, but, um, those are by far the toughest things I've had to deal with in my life. And my heart goes out whenever I see anything that somebody's dealing with a loss of a family member, a loved one, a friend, my heart just breaks for them because I, I know how that emotion and I know all of those things that surround those events, losing a family member and all of the things that fall out from that. Sometimes there's positive and you hope that there's positive that comes out of it. But unfortunately, human nature, those things bring out some ugly stuff in people. Yeah. I mean, really ugly stuff. Right. And so you find out who your true loved ones are. You truly find out who your friends are when you go through those sort of things. So, like I said, they're unfortunate events, but it's very fortunate in the long run because it begins to define who are your friends? Who truly are your family members that really care about you and really, you know, or are they worried about material goods, you yeah. know, or money or shit that 
just doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? In life, those things don't matter. What matters is the relationships and the people that you care about and the people that care about you. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've you know made the the most of it, but at the same time, I can't even imagine. Um, I've got brothers, and and you know I can't imagine. So I, I'm sorry that you've dealt with that, and and uh, especially at you know like your sophomore year, you know I can't imagine that was an easy season for you um, for a variety of reasons, but you still managed to excel. So that says a lot about your own character. Well, I, I attribute a lot of it to Coach Smith because, as I said at the beginning, he helped mentor me through that process, right? And there was a a very uh, specific moment. I was having to I was having to make 118. This is later in the season, so it's a couple of months after my dad had passed, and I'm like eight and a half over. I got cotton mouth, like I'm not sweating. It was one of those moments. And I just completely broke down and I lost it. And in coach in that moment, he separated himself from being my wrestling coach. And he just sat there as a friend and like a brother and just gave me a big hug and just said, let's stop cutting weight for a little bit. Let's forget about that. And let's talk about it. And so we spent the next 30 minutes just going through all the emotions that I was going through and, and all of that. And, in his magical way, 30 minutes after that, I had my sweats on and I was going like a madman to get my weight off. So yeah. again, I attribute him helping me through that time in my life to, to deal with that. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That makes me even, that makes me like him even more, uh, to hear that he's that kind of guy, you know, um, yeah. I would love to meet him someday. I, I think I could have him on my podcast. If I could, if I could talk, I'd probably be like, hi, Coach Smith. <laughs> Uh, he's done some funny stuff, so you'd have to be prepared because he might throw you a curveball. Um, when Flow Wrestling, and, and this interview is still out there, when Flow Wrestling got started, Martin Floriani went to interview him, and Martin asked him a really simple question, like a lead-in question, and it was something to the effect of, like, uh, can you tell us where you grew up and, and what your upbringing was like, right? And Coach Smith, dead serious. He starts the interview by saying something to the effect of, I'll have to go back and look at it. I'm probably going to screw this up, but he said something to the effect of, well, I, I grew up, my family, we grew up and we lived in a tree house. Right? <laughs> and he starts into this story. Again, I'm screwing it up, but he completely threw Martin a curveball. And Martin didn't know how to take it for a few minutes, but then finally coach started laughing and broke up and then he told the real story. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah. A, a pretty amazing individual. I love how, uh, he, I don't know if cocky is the word I would use for him, but like somebody will ask him something like some, some lady was asking him some interview about after his, after one of his duels. And he was like, well, I can't wrestle for him. If I could, they'd never lose. <laughs> And then there was uh, I, I, he, there was another one. He was getting introduced, and somebody introduced him, and they said, "John Smith, uh, two-time Olympic champion, three-time world champion, and uh, he was a four-time world champion." And so, coach came up after the introduction, and he kind of looked at him, and he gave him a sly look, and he said. You know, I had six world titles, and four <laughs> world championships, and two Olympics, and the person like went white for a second, like, "Oh my god!" And then he started he started laughing and went into his into his talk. Um, but yeah, that that's the type of individual he is. 
Yeah, I, Royce Alger told a story one time on Flow about John Smith, about how uh, somebody was asking him, like, like, uh, well, were you, what did you think about having to wrestle the uh, defending Olympic champion to make the team or whatever? And he, go, he just goes, well, you see, in 1988, I had decided that I was going to be the Olympic champion. And that was the end of it. He was just like, well, that's what I decided, and so that's what happened. And I was like, man, that's great. Very matter of fact, very confident. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, this is kind of, I don't know how long an answer this will be, but what do you think is going on in this country? I've seen you had some opinions that, you know. Uh, brother. Um, so, I, I think we're at an unfortunate, um, we're, we're at the unfortunate perfect storm, right? We've, the country's been divided for so long that you've got two camps that no one's going to budge, right? So, oh boy. Um, so I feel like the public school system has been managed and uh, under the control of the left for an extremely long time. And so I feel like our public school system across the country for decades now have been bringing people up in that mindset, right? You also have a national media that for the longest time were able to say and do whatever they wanted with, with no fallback. No one really held their hands to the fire. And then in 2016, you get a guy, Donald Trump, that comes along and throws a wrench into it, right? Now, the right has obviously made their own camp and they're unwilling to budge on certain things. And when you insert Donald Trump, there's no, hey, let's come to the middle and, and figure out how we can work this together. It was like the line was drawn in the sand and my opinion, right, I feel like the first three years of his presidency, they threw everything they could at him to get him to fail. I mean, they, if we just run down the litany of things that, that he was uh, put up against and had to fight against, uh, it's been incredible. And, and I think that's why his camp on the right uh, fights so hard for him. Um, and then that perfect storm starts to happen, right? You've got people that won't budge on the left and you've got people that won't budge on the right. You've got people inciting the extreme left and you've got people inciting the extreme right. Whereas I think if you walk down any street in America, um, and I only say this because in my lifetime, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I lived in Oklahoma. I've lived in Boston because I coached at Harvard. Uh, I'm now in Washington, D.C. for nine years. I've seen, I've actually lived in some different places in the country. I think if you walk down any street in America, neighbors are good to each other, right? It's, it's when we enter this world that people don't have to identify themselves with. And what I mean by that is social media. Yeah. Right? If you get on social media and you're typing behind a keyboard, people have a tendency to say or do a lot more than if they would if they were face-to-face -face with their neighbor, Yeah, right? And so I think that's where we're at right now. I think we're in a very difficult time. Uh, COVID, whatever people's opinions are of COVID, is 
are we actually going through this or did somebody plan this and are they attempting to, I don't care what conspiracy people believe or they're following. The reality is I've been in lockdown for three months. You've been in lockdown for three months. You, you then couple the only way that people can communicate for the most part are now on these social means. It takes away the human interaction in reality. And so now everything's escalating even a, a step higher. And so I hope, I hope, and this is my prayer every day, is that people will begin to come back to reality and realize my neighbor is my neighbor and they're trying to get along as much as I'm trying to get along, right? Yeah. Um, if we can start to come back to that fundamental relationship with everybody we, we interact with and come into contact with, and even more importantly, treat people like that on social media as opposed to the divisive, the this is you're wrong and I'm right every every step of the way. I think when we can come back to that middle ground, we have a chance to move forward. Yeah. Right? Um, what what do I want for my kids? I want my kids to be able to go to school when school starts in the fall, and I want them to be able to attend a class and go to gym class and have fun and be kids every single day that they go to school and learn what really happened in history, yeah. right? Good, bad, ugly, and different. They got to learn it. I'm a huge history reader. I, I, I won't call myself a history buff, but I love learning history. Yeah. Going back to when I was in college, I studied the classics. So ancient Greece, breakdown of ancient Rome is really where I spent a lot of my time. I thought I was going to be a history professor. Um, all the way up through modern history, you read and learn these things. We are we are completing the cycle, the circle of stupidity from society and civilization. Right? Yeah. We are just circling our way back around to the starting point again. It's almost as like we haven't learned anything from the past, and we're about to we're about to go down a really ugly path again. I hope we're smart enough to realize that and put a put a stop gate on it and create a new path um, because I think we can be bigger and better than ever. But we're all going to have to take a step back and and be willing to listen and learn. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes people will just argue with facts or they'll like boo facts, and I'm like, that's not some opinion. That's that actually happened, you know. Um, and I think it's also unfortunate that we pay so much attention to the small amount of the people in this country who are hateful and who are this or who are that it's like well there's a lot of good people that you're just that you're just not even paying attention to you know yeah you're discounting yeah you're discounting or um i i agree with you 100% like there are there are a lot of people that we can listen and learn from but today it as soon as that person steps up or goes to say something they go wait a minute whose team are they on yeah. Oh, they're on their team. I'm not listening. Right? Yeah. Discounted before they even speak a word. Now, I also think that when somebody does stand up and they do say something and it's maybe off base or it's not using facts that are real, right? It's it's some skewed view of what they want to believe the numbers should say. Like 
at some point, those people, somebody on their team has to say, hey, you, you're way off base, right? Yeah. Like, you're trying to draw your own conclusion when you won't look at the facts of, of the situation or the reality of the situation. So, yeah. Well, um, change the topic a little bit. What, uh, you know, God willing, the uh, season is going to go forward as normal as planned. Uh, what are you most excited about, like, with your team and everything? I just want to get back into practice. Yeah. Right? Like, I love, I'm 44 years old. I love getting on the mats and wrestling with my guys. Nice. I love working out with them. I love going live with a guy, and, and I realize, man, he's got a really good setup to this high crotch, but he's not driving through his finish like this. And so you take 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and you work on that one nuance, and then they go out to compete, and they score the takedown because of that one little change. I love it. That's why I'm still in coaching. And the last three months has felt like part of my soul has been ripped out and hung out to dry because not only are we not allowed to communicate with them or we're not allowed to be hands-on with them, we have rules against us even doing like a virtual workout with them. Oh, wow. So I'm just, I feel like I'm put in handcuffs to be able to do what I love to do and why I do it. So yeah. I'm hoping when the fall comes and season comes that we have some semblance of normalcy back for myself, for my athletes. Look, they're, they're, they're between 17 and 23 years old. And if this extends a full 12 months, I my heart breaks for all of these kids that are losing out on all of these life-changing events that can happen at this very important time of their life. I know for me, if you pulled three months out of my life at any time in high school or college, I probably wouldn't be who I am today. Yeah. Now, if you extend that to six months or 12 months, I definitely don't turn out to be who I am today. And so I just want to see us get back to, to, to normal. Yeah, me too. I was so bummed out about the NCAs. I had a friend who was coming, he was featuring for me in Reno and he was going to come back and I've got this big TV and we we're just going to sit on my couch for three days and watch NCAs. And, and then they're like, then they're like, well, they're going to have it with no crowd. And at first I was like, well, that sucks. And then when they're like, they're canceling the whole thing, I was like, well, just do it with no crowd. You know, <laughs> all of a sudden I'm all about it, you know, but yeah, it yeah. was, uh, that, that stung for me. Um, is there any rules in college right now that drive you crazy? Uh, yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. A lot of them. Um, I feel like we have put the officials in a really tough spot. So I'll give one example that I think is maybe a microcosm of, of the other things that are happening in college wrestling. So they instituted the push-out rule, or not the push-out rule. They instituted the out-of-bounds rule yeah. a few years ago. And a referee, depending upon what happens, the referee can either call out-of-bounds, like action, no points, or he can say, Green, you stepped out and you were avoiding wrestling, so you're stalling. Or he can say, Red, I think you were pushing him out of bounds. You were stalling. So the referee has three calls to make, of which all three can be correct. So when I see these things go on, the two guys are wrestling on the edge and it's a really tough match. They go out of bounds and the referee goes, uh, action, no points. And then you have one coach in one corner going, he was stalling, he backed right out. And then I'm in the other corner going, we, we like he pushed us straight out. Like, yeah. That should be stalling. And so 
if there could be some clarity and make it more black and white, make it more definitive so the referees are not put in these really tough situations. That's number one. Number two, we've got to figure out riding time. We've got to figure out what is the purpose of riding time because if our goal is to create a product that is exciting and marketable, um, riding time takes an ice pick and just stabs it right into the heart of that. Yeah. And so I feel like we should, I've been a part of some of these conversations of how can we use riding time to an advantage? And this is the one I really like. If you and I are wrestling and I take you down, the riding time starts and I have 30 seconds to ride you. If I ride you for 30 seconds, the, the riding, the referee stops the match he awards me a point for riding you for 30 seconds and we get started back up on our feet. If you escape or reverse me within 30 seconds, then you get your escape or your reversal. You know, if you get the reversal, then the riding time now goes to you for 30 seconds. But I think it should be limited to 30 seconds. And if I achieve the goal of riding you for 30 seconds, just give me a point and we start back up on our feet. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see college wrestling making any changes to it anytime soon but something's got to give yeah because um we have we have a very marketable and exciting sport and i think we have to stay on that path to keep it more exciting and more marketable for our fan base yeah yeah it drives me nuts sometimes watching like you know if someone's stalling and they hit him for stalling with 30 seconds left and the guy continues to stall I'm like, it's still stalling. Even if there's five seconds left, he's still stalling. So ding him. And if, if yeah. they called stalling the way they should, it, it would. I think it would go a long way in in uh, making you know wrestling for, for the casual fan more exciting. And I also, if someone if if they don't have any warnings, and there's five seconds left, and they just head for the hills and like basically run straight back, I'm like. BS. They should call. They should. That should be one point right off the bat, whether he has a warning or not, because you shouldn't just be able to sprint in the other direction. You yeah. know, fleeing the hold, right? Yeah, um, I agree with you one hundred percent. I brought a good friend of mine as an NCAA official, and so I brought him into our team two years ago, and I said, "Can you just explain from a ref from a referee's vantage point?" your perspective on what you're looking for in the match so that we can educate ourselves on it and the guys can understand strategy better. And he said something that just really stuck in my crop. And he said, gentlemen, stalling in the first minute will never be called, right? And stalling will be called differently from the first period to the third period. Understand that right now. And I said to myself, I I think I'm wrong, but in basketball, I think the foul is called the same at the beginning of the game and the end of the game. Yeah. In baseball, the foul ball is still a foul ball in the first inning or the ninth inning. Why in wrestling are we okay with what is stalling in the first minute is not okay in, in the seventh minute? I, yeah. I don't understand that. Yeah. Right? So, again, if we can make it a little bit more black and white, a little bit more clear on and definitive, I feel like it would make the referee's jobs easier. Yeah. Now we're like, think about this. If you're the referee and the guy goes for a takedown and the other guy's now in imminent danger on his back 
the referee has to remember to call it and make it verbal. Right? Yeah. If he's there, then he can award the takedown. But did the guy in that position, is he is he stalling by just clamming up and holding on the leg? So he has to remember there could be a stalling call in there at some point. Like There's so many things for these referees to have to have a handle on. Yeah. That everybody is is the Sunday armchair quarterback afterwards. A match goes on, they watch it on video and they go, oh, Well, this is what the this is what the official should have called. Have you ever been out there and had a whistle on? Yeah. It's really difficult. Yeah. Really difficult. And I will never put a whistle on at the NCAA level. No way. I'm just gonna continue to judge the ball <laughs> from, from my chair. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's uh, it it, inv- the, the, it invites inconsistency, you know. I mean, they're only human, and you know, like you said, they have to make those decisions. It's such a you know quick thing, and I don't know. Um, I won't keep you on here all day, but uh, I've enjoyed talking to you. Do you prefer freestyle or folk style as a fan? Freestyle, hundred percent. Yeah, especially especially with the rules that we're wrestling under right now. I think the freestyle rules at this point in time are the best set of rules maybe in my lifetime yeah. that I've watched in freestyle. The problem with freestyle is like you could go back every quadrium and we've wrestled under a different set of rules. What Coach Smith wrestled under in, in 88-92 is similar to what we're doing now. It was a whole 180 different from what we saw in 2012, mm-hmm. right? And different than what we saw in 2008 when they were like grabbing the balls out of a bag to decide who's going to grab a leg. It was like insane. Yeah. So I, I love the rules that we're wrestling under currently. We've got rid of a lot of corruption in freestyle. It's not totally gone, but we got rid of a lot of corruption in freestyle. And I think if we keep moving on this course that we're on right now, we've got a really good product to be able to sell. I mean, look, the UFC is taking advantage of our guys like Henry Sugo that are gold medalists and Daniel Cormier, a two-time Olympian. So it, it's a great product, and we can bring more people into our wrestling family. Folk style, it pays the bills. Yeah, yeah. I also can't stand how they let guys stall on top. I'm like, man, when I was in high school, if you didn't get out to the side, they dinged you for stalling. And now I'm like, I'm like, stalling on top is still a thing. You can call it, yeah. you know? But yeah. I agree 100%. And even when you're coaching, there's that strategy as a coach where you're like, okay, we know this guy might be a little weak on bottom. So if he chooses down in the second, let's just hammer him for two minutes, right? Let's be safe and not put ourselves into a danger trying to go for a turn, but let's just hammer him on top. So from a coaching strategy, because the rules are what they are, sometimes you're like, you go against your own philosophy because you're like, it's going to win us the match Yeah, if we wrestle that style. Yeah. Uh, I have a 19-month-old son now, and I know you've got four kids. Uh, what's the best part about having kids, and do you have any advice for me? Oh, man. The best part about having kids, I would say um, when you get to see them do something that they couldn't do yesterday. Yeah, right? Like to actually see the development or the growth. And for me, it's the physical stuff. Like when our kids were younger and they couldn't ride a bike in that day, they learned how to ride a bike. Like the rest of their life, they're going to know how to do that. Yeah. Right. So for me, that's probably the best thing 
Um, advice, man, you don't want to take parenting advice from me. <laughs> uh, I would just say try and enjoy every moment. I mean, I know for your profession, you guys live on the road. You've got to be on the road to stay sharp and, and continue to grow your career. The 20 years I've been in coaching, uh, I missed a lot of my kids' um, elementary school activities, their sports growing up, and it kills me because – my mom and dad were pretty much at everything I did growing up. And um, there were a lot of things I missed. Uh, At the end of the day, like I'm very blessed that I have the position that I have and I have the job. It's been able, I can provide for my family for it. Um, So that would be my advice. If if you can skip a show and it's not going to end up killing, it's not going to hurt the family financially, then stick around and see what they're doing. Right? Yeah. Now, if he's just in the backyard climbing a tree, then go hit the show and, and bring the check home, yeah. right? Yeah. So I actually have a question for you, if you don't mind me asking you a question. No, please. How did this turn into a profession for you? How did, how did you end up going down the comedy path? Uh, I was going to be a teacher and a wrestling coach, and mainly because I didn't know what else to do. And uh, the But the... The closer I got to becoming a teacher, like entering the school of education, the final step and all that, I did this teacher aiding and I was like, I don't think I want to be a teacher. Like, I don't think I like, I don't, I don't think my heart would be in it enough to be a good teacher. And if your heart's not in it, you shouldn't do it teaching. But I was starting to have a lot of anxiety about it. And then this friend of mine, she had me listen to a, a CD from a guy named Bill Hicks. And it was hilarious. And I walked home that night. And I thought to myself, that is the funniest guy I've ever heard, and I had never heard of him. So to me, I was like, I can do this for a living, even if I never get famous. And so from the goal, from the from the jump, that was kind of my goal was just to learn how to do it. And within two years, um, the restaurant I was working at closed down, and I haven't had a day job since. It's been almost twenty years, but it was just one of those things where you know sometimes you just know you can do it. You know, even though I. I I get nervous, and I've ha- I've always been that way. I used to get nervous before going to school and everything, and like throwing up, kind of nervous. But when it came to stand up, I just knew that I could do it. So I changed my major the very next day. I went to my counselor, and I was like, "I'm going to be a comedian, but I've got all these credits. I might as well get a degree." And she was like, "Okay." And then she looked she looked it up, and she was like, "Well, you can have a social science degree next semester." And I was like, "I'll take one of those." <laughs> And then I started doing open mic nights after I graduated, and then right at the two-year mark is, you know, when I started doing it full-time, and God willing, I'll never get a, a another job, but, right. yeah, so. I, I, I find it fascinating. I'm a huge fan of, of the Conan O'Brien podcast, and the thing I like most about it is when he brings his guests on, you know, and they're, 95% of them are comedians, and he'll ask that question, like, when did you decide this is what you were going to do for the rest of your life? And it's so interesting because I don't ever remember a time growing up where I would consider that like an unorthodox profession. Mm-hmm. You chose a profession that doesn't have a blueprint per se yeah. that says, you know, like me being a wrestling coach, there's a blueprint to it, right? You start as an assistant and you work your way up the ranks. And But, but for comedy, you've really got to be creative you got to work your tail off. I mean, when I hear these stories about the life that these guys lead of getting gigs and being willing to drive to the small town yeah. and do the one night gig to get a check, like I'm just really impressed by that. It almost, 
for me, it sounds like a wrestler's mentality. You almost have to have a wrestler's mentality. Like I'm going to grind through this because at the end of the tunnel, there's the, I'm going to be able to make a living out of it, and I might have a really good time. Yeah, I used to drive. I used to drive four hours to do five minutes at a just 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 at a different club because I knew it was important to be funny everywhere, not just in my home club. Um, and when people hear that stuff, you know, when when people ask me what I what you have to do to become a comedian, and I tell them, they're always like, "I'm like, you got to get on stage in as many different environments as often as you possibly can, and not worry about making a nickel for two years." And they're like, "Well, how else can I do it?" I'm like, well, "That's the only way, <laughs> you know. That if you want to be good at it, that's the only way." Um, right. So. Uh, it, it's been good to me for the most part, and now I'm at a point in my career where I don't have to be gone all the time. Now I'm gone maybe eight to ten days a month at the most, and they're never at, and it's never all in a row. You know, I'll do like three or four days, and then I'll come home. and And the older he's getting, the the less I can be away from him. Anyway, it just drives me crazy. Um, do but, you um, do you feel like the internet has changed that profession? Because twenty years ago. You couldn't just pull up a podcast or, or a YouTube and hear somebody's routine. I would assume 20 years ago, you could go town to town, and it was they never heard your your lines before. Yeah. Now, it's kind of like, I would, I would assume you have to be a lot more creative. Yeah, you, you know, you have to decide what you're okay with being on the internet, for one thing, but... In a, in a lot of ways, it's... Uh, I sound like the old guy, but it's kind of screwed up the profession a little bit, because... Now people get a, you know, like you can get a following before you even have a joke. So now you got people that are come to your shows because they follow you for whatever reason, but you might not be good at stand-up yet. You know what I mean? So yeah. when I was starting out, you just, you, you got better and you did open mics and then you became a host and then you got to move up to feature and then you moved up to headliner. Um, so it was a process. And now, like you could be a YouTube star, but... You don't know how to do comedy, but you're still selling out comedy clubs. So now people come and they pay 25 bucks to see this YouTube star, and nine times out of ten they suck at stand up. So then you got people that, yeah, that club may have sold 1,200 tickets that weekend, but you've also got 1,200 people that are never going to come back, and they're sure not going to see, well, who's Tim Gaither? His tickets are $17. He must really suck, <laughs> you know, because they don't know any better. So. Right. In, in that aspect of it, it's it's been kind of kind of hard for me. And, and guys that have been doing it my the same amount of time as me, we all have the same grievances. But you either adapt or you have to quit. So you know th- that's what's been good about this lockdown is I've built up my YouTube more than it has been, and I've I've actually probably been working harder without getting paid near as much um, th- since before I, I you know the lockdown and all that stuff. But Right. I've got to spend a lot of time with my kid and all that, and uh, awesome. that part of it's been good. But um, I, I could talk to you all day long, but we've already been on here for an hour and thirty-five minutes, and I got to go pick up my wife. But uh, all right, um, is there anything else you would like to leave us with? No, I just I just want to say thank you for having me on. Uh, it's an honor to be on with you, and um, I appreciate you taking the time to explore. You know, everybody that you've interviewed from the wrestling side of things, I appreciate it because when I pull up those podcasts and Sammy is telling stories or Eric Aiken's telling stories, like it gives me a chance to learn a little bit more of them. I'm, I'm friends with those guys. I'm good friends with those guys. But there's things that will come out in these interviews, these podcasts that I never knew. Right? Yeah. And I'm sure the same 
somebody's going to watch this and find out about maybe some of the things I went through or my family or that sort of stuff. And maybe when they see that craziest social media post that I put out there, maybe, maybe they'll understand why. Maybe they'll understand my perspective a little bit more. I doubt it, but maybe. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you being on here, and it was an honor to have you. And uh, there, there's a lot of stuff I would like to get your opinion about. So uh, um, I, I'd like to stay in touch with you, and maybe I'll, uh, I'll get to ask you those questions sometimes. I also want to get an American uh, University Wrestling t-shirt. Consider it done. So. Consider it done. I also, if you ever come to the DMV area, if you're ever in Baltimore, D.C., Northern Virginia, please let me know because I want to come down and, and catch a show for sure. Okay, definitely. I sure will. I really appreciate it, T. Thanks a lot for being on here, buddy. Thank you, Tim. Good luck with everything. Thanks, man. You too. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. That was Teague Moore. I really enjoyed talking to him. I, I, I had a lot of other questions I, I Wanted to ask him, to be honest with you, but it, it's, uh, God, an hour and 40 minutes just flew by. I really enjoyed talking to that guy, and I knew he would. I knew I would. I've seen some of his stuff on Facebook, and we talked a little bit just on Messenger, and and uh, I think we agree on, on quite a few things. And Anyway, he's a super cool dude. As always, go to makingithappen.com, M-A-C-A-N-It-Happen.com, and uh, help out little Bo Macon and his family. And please go to YouTube.com forward slash Tim Gaither and uh, sign up for my YouTube, subscribe, and like my videos, and all that other business, and you can find uh, all my social media links on timgathercomedy.com, and I think that's about it. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. God bless all of you. Take care. Bye.